As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Show and our latest round of listener questions. Today we're looking at the best resources to learn about soccer. Leeds United's transfer window, the ballad of Ricky Pooge, why Liga Rameki's jerseys have so many gosh darn sponsors, and much, much more. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who answers listener questions like England win games at Euro 2022 comprehensively. Taylor Rocco, hello. Hello, I'll take that. I'll take a comparison to that England team who did that to Norway. Yeah, yeah, through through to the next round with a game to spare against North Ireland, who already eliminated Tete. You know, maybe Germany or Spain or Denmark in the next round. But hey, so good so far. That's the opposite way around. Did I say? Yeah. That's all right. Uh, and then on yesterday's show, I took the brave stance of predicting that England would make it to the next round, forcing Graham to pick the second place team. Uh, very brave <laughs> on my part. Excellent stuff. <laughs> that one is on the feed. Also here, a man who commits to listen to questions like Barcelona commit to participating in a transfer window fully. It's Graham <laughs> Ruffin. Hello. Hello. I mean, that is quite apt because I feel like my life is just the embodiment of the this is fine gif. And that very much feels like what Barcelona are doing this summer in the transfer window. Someone explained to me how they're spending so much money. Yeah, I just don't know. As I said on the last show I was on, G, I was at the stadium. It is basically falling apart um, and they're spending even more money. Rafinha apparently coming in. He may have already come in as as we record. The latest non-registered player, Graham. That's totally fine, right? Sure. How many replica shirts did you buy for them to afford Rafinha this week? I bought a grand total of zero. But I'll tell you what, Graham, their store is very, very <laughs> impressive. It, in the stadium, it's like three layers. It, it's Graham Heaven, basically. Every kind of slightly ugly shirt with Spotify on it, you could want. Wonderful stuff. They they add, I've heard they add a floor to the store every time they sign a player over for over 50 million euros. They have That's to add right. another another floor to, to fit more merchandise in. Yeah, do you know what? Actually, it was three stories, but they were actually, it was actually five stories, but they hadn't registered the top two stories yet. So they can't actually go up there and sell stuff <laughs> there, but um, they'll get there eventually, I hope. Uh, Graham, rounding out our pack, a man who answers. You guys are now just describing, you're just describing like a sad on its last legs mall. And I feel like that is also appropriate. So it works. Yeah, yeah there's Definitely a rainforest cafe in there somewhere as well. Yeah. <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> also, here rounding out a pack, a man who answers listener questions like Cucho Hernandez debuts for Columbus Crew. It's convincingly, it's Joe Lowry. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Ryan Bailey. Yeah, he's banging in goals. It was a really good day yesterday for Colombian strikers. You had Duran scoring some goals for Chicago. You had Cucho Hernandez getting goals for the Columbus crew. He's been on fire since coming into MLS. I, I hope he sustains it for the crew's sake, for Jordan Angeli's sake, because I, I think when he's at his best, the crew are, are firing on all cylinders, and they can actually be really dangerous in the Eastern Conference. Indeed. Cucho with three goals in his first two games. Nay, a bad debut, I'd say, Joseph. Not bad at all. Um, we've got plenty of listener questions to get to on this show, guys. Before we get there, uh, one of our questions, as I mentioned in the intro, pertains to soccer jerseys and the many, many sponsorships that they have in uh, the Mexican League. I'd like to know from each of you, I'm springing this on you, if you could have any sponsor on your jersey, 
that like the, your jersey of choice, what would it be? If it was the Joe Lowry jersey, if it was the Graham Rutherford jersey, what would embody your personal brand? I'll go first. Um, it's very easy for me. Starbucks on the front, chilies on the back. That is yeah. my essence. Um, Graham, any ideas? <laughs> Um, I would just want Hummel stripes all over the shirt. Just no, no actual brand sponsor. Just Hummel made, Hummel sponsored, oh, unmistakably wow. Hummel. Great! You realise you look like a 1950s prisoner if you just had arrows all over your shirt. Yeah, that was the idea. That was the look I was going for with that. <laughs> Excellent, Taylor. Any ideas on this one? Uh, yeah, I'm going to annoy Joe here. I'm a big fan of sparkling water or fizzy water. Spindrift is, is a solid one, so maybe I want spindrift water. They, I think maybe that's the way I'm going to go. And the water's oh, and then a buffalo a buffalo <laughs> sauce on the back oh. just to make Joe extra angry. <laughs> oh, my gosh. My team's going to smack your team 6-0, Taylor. That is just so upsetting. Your, I hate that so much. Bourbon. My, my answer is actual bourbon. I'd probably go like Woodford or something. That would be the ideal for me. Okay. And Joe, what, what, team, what would your team that smashes Taylor's team be wearing? So, I, I, Taylor, I love how we think food first or beverages first every single time. Got to, got to. Um, I'm going, there's a, a pie place in Phoenix called Piefection that makes some really good pie. I, I would make just a, a homemade pie company to then slap down the front, but that kind of defeats the purpose of it being homemade. So I'm going for Piefection front and back and shirt. And let's just go for the all over the jersey Liga Mekki style while we're at it. You're just trying Taylor, to- was yours, did, did you just say yours was whiskey on the back and hot sauce, or no, buffalo sauce on the front? <laughs> That, that is the, quite the quite the combination. I do not want to clean your cage out in the morning. Uh, no, that was that was mostly the first two were genuinely just to annoy Joe. The last one was real. Bur- bourbon okay. is the answer. I would have bourbon on my jersey. Okay, uh, okay. And on my your dress, cage. but that's that's more of a spillage thing. Yeah. If, if jo- and in your hand. If Joe's team yeah. played Graham's team, I think Graham's team would be very distracted by the idea of pies being on the other shirt. Yep. They are they are fruit That's pies, true. not meat pies, but Graham doesn't have to know that, so it's cool. <laughs> Excellent stuff. I still like fruit pies. All, okay, all pies are, are welcome in my shirt. Just a pastry can. Good man. Can I just make sure that Graham said he doesn't want to clean my cage? Yeah, that Graham, is one hundred percent what he said. One hundred percent what Graham said. <laughs> I don't know how people live in America. That's... <laughs> Like hamsters. Graham, so Florida? Graham, Florida is not like the rest of the country. Oh, so yeah, I, they sure. might okay. do that there, but they don't do that in many other states. That might, that might be the mistake I'm making. Oh, boy. Let's move on from this one quickly. Graham, one more kit thing that came in. Uh, most of our listener questions, and it's totalsockshow.com slash questions if you want to send us one. Most of them are asking Graham things. Um, Steve Norman, Brandon Odzer, and many, many others asked for Graham's opinion on that Partick Thistle Kingsley kit. If you could explain <laughs> what it is, Graham, and your thoughts on it. Oh, I'm not sure if I can. Okay, so but going back a good number of years now, Partick Thistle held a competition for people to design their new mascot, and the winning design was this absolute trip of a mascot where it's meant to be a sun, but it kind of looks like a sun on crystal meth or something and he's called Kingsley and he is stuck around as the Partick Thistle mascot in fact if you want to see a picture of Kingsley my header image on Twitter has been Kingsley chasing a group of children in George Square in Glasgow uh, uh, that picture always makes me laugh anyway Partick Thistle have fully leaned into this identity their new shirt or one of their new shirts for this season is just a giant Kingsley on the front and to make it even better the shorts are, are meant to be a kilt um, and it's absolutely dreadful and I love it so much and I can't wait to get my hands on one of them. How many have you ordered? Um, just every single one. <laughs> Excellent. That's how part of this are uh, budgeting their team this year, I suppose. Good stuff. All right. And yeah, uh, I'm sure we'll put up the a Barcelona method. Yeah, indeed. At least they're probably registering their players. We shall see. We shall see. Anyway, plenty of listener questions to get to in this episode. Let's start off with Aircraft E, quality handle. Always been a fan of the game, but I've gotten way more into it this year, especially MLS. What are the best ways for me to better understand soccer strategy and formations and so on and so forth? Aside from watching games, are there online resources or something of the ilk? I'm trying to understand what I'm looking for or what I'm looking at on Football Manager. Lols, thanks from Aircraft E. Uh, excellent use of ilk. Big fan of that one. I would say, uh, from my perspective, Joe... Uh, a good place to start is TSS, which is obviously something that Aircraft E is doing. But the TIFO series from The Athletic on YouTube, yeah. I've always found very, very instructional and useful. If you look on there at the moment on their homepage, you've got the TIFO guide to 343 and 433. You've got things like who owns Barcelona. Yeah. You've got a video called How Football Actually Works. So, Joe, that would be my starting point. 
Yeah, Tifo is so good. So, so good. It is my favorite video soccer stuff that goes out on the internet. I, I watch as much of it as I can as I have time for. They're, they're really good at what they do. They don't ever dive into American soccer. So that is one thing, Aircrafty, that if you're looking for MLS stuff specifically, that's probably not where I would head to start. But those formation guides, Ryan, that you're talking about are a really good and useful place to start learning more about the game and just give you a very bird's eye view understanding of okay this team is playing this shape what does that even mean what does a 442 look like why do teams play it maybe what is some of the historical context behind it soccer 101 i would say as well is a really good resource for this stuff taylor you and daryl did stuff on the the positions and what the numbers mean that was years ago now that's incredibly useful i learned what the numbers mean from that episode so that's a huge thing that i think is valuable as well as some of the formation guides that are in that feed too Eric Laurie, who I believe did some of those videos for TIFO on the formations, was working at a club in Scandinavia and is now a scout and opponent analyst for the U.S. men's national team. And he, he put together, I believe, some of those videos and a nice thread on Twitter that uh, if you just search Eric Laurie, you'll find it pretty quickly. You'll find just a guide with advantages and disadvantages on paper to every formation. And now as you dive deeper into soccer, you'll realize that it's a lot more fluid maybe than some of those graphics look like. But I think Eric just has those intended to be a very macro bird's eye view guide. So that's that's stuff I would recommend for getting into soccer in a more general sense. I would say read Doyle, uh, Matt Doyle on, on MLSsoccer.com if you want to learn more about tactics and just get an idea of what's going on in MLS. And then maybe one other more macro thing that goes through the history of tactics a little bit more. Zonal Marking by Michael Cox I thought was a really good read. It's, again, European-focused, but it was digestible and understandable in a way that maybe some other tactics books aren't, and I, I, I really enjoyed it. So Eric Laurie, TIFO, Soccer 101, TSS, Matt Doyle, all that good stuff, I would recommend all of those resources. Joe, how do you spell Eric Laurie? It's E-R-I-C. L-A-U-R-I-E, I believe, unless I wrote it down wrong in my notes, but 99% sure that's right. <laughs> All right. I, I was not aware of him, so I will be yeah. uh, checking him out and following him right now as we speak. Good. Good man. I don't know Eric, but he's, he seems good. Excellent stuff. I shall, too, check him out. <laughs> Joseph Tater, do you have anything to add to the list? Um, forgive me, Joe. Did you mention inverting the pyramid in there? Or, I did or not. That one of the, or is that one of the books that maybe could be a little bit uh, too maybe. difficult? Maybe. Yeah, I, I yeah, maybe say that because I still haven't finished it, but maybe no other reason. <laughs> Would it help you to know that I haven't either? Uh, ah, good. It's, it's, I'm kind of a, of the same mind that I think if you want a deep history of tactics, like kind of starting at the very beginning, uh, and then I think the most modern version runs through more recent developments and i think i i use it as a sort of like jumping around book i'll go to the index and look for the thing i'm looking for if it's gegenpressing or something like that there'll be a good explanation in there like a brief history and then you'll end up tracing it back to where it connects to almost always like an austrian coffee house is somehow where all the good soccer ideas came from uh so i think that's good if you want a a larger history uh for for the tactical side of things but yeah i think zonal marking is a great one joe that's a solid shout i have that on my shelf as well i'm looking at it now oh um that's jonathan wilson by the way who wrote inverting the pyramid um tater i've actually finished that book and i'm a dum-dum i'm surprised (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it's good it's it's a good book yeah i i just i just struggle it is it is very historical which is useful and informative i think that's what jonathan wilson wrote it to be but it's not necessarily what i expected it was going to be when i started to read it and uh i just i just haven't gotten right. back yeah. to it like so. put it put it this way in ted lasso they have coach beard reading that on the yeah. plane and I get why he would be reading that. That's a great little reference there. But at the same time, every time I have gone to read that in a casual setting, and this is not a knock against Jonathan Wilson. It's just once you get deep into the history of tactics, and it's a, it's a kind of like a history textbook of, like, in 1876 it was this, but then in 1877 it moved to this, and then they went to that. Eventually my eyes start to get a little bit heavy is sort of the way it <laughs> it's goes like- for me. It's like a tactical Ulysses. It's like a cornerstone yes. of yes. football literature, but I'm yes. not entirely sure if you would read it on the plane. <laughs> uh, I feel like we're all having like a, a moment here of just honesty because I like I've heard everyone talk about inverting the pyramid for most like since I first heard about it. It's always been this like you have to read it, you have to read it, you have to read it, and you should. It's very important, and I think the the James Joyce reference is 
perfect, Graham, because it's very important, very influential, means a lot to a lot of people, but at the same time can be a little bit dense to get into. I think once you're in it, then you're in it and you're kind of cruising through it, but it can take a little bit of work to get into, for me at least. Yeah, perhaps for aircrafty, that's a slightly more esoteric step. Maybe that's the second or third step, whereas, you know, your TIFOs might be your mm. intros. Uh, Graham, anything to add on that one? Show me the video. Indeed. <laughs> So I would recommend The Coach's Voice, and this is a a site dedicated to tactics and coaching methods, and they do these masterclass videos. You might have seen them on Twitter because the thumbnails that they use on those videos have become almost a bit of a meme, and I saw the the Unai Emery one um, (laughs) circulating around Twitter when Villarreal made it to the semifinals of the Champions League last season. But the videos themselves are actually very good, and basically what they are is managers or coaches, they get to explain in their own words certain strategies or formations that they've used and they plot it all on a tactics board as well so there's a visual element as well and there was a really interesting one recently with Pep Linders who is the the Liverpool assistant coach where he talked through the tactics that he and Jurgen Klopp used in the the 4-0 win in the Champions League semi-finals against Barcelona a few seasons ago and it's a solid 30 30 minute video so it's a proper in-depth look at a single match and I, I find those videos very very interesting I always feel like I learn something about the team as well I also had TIFO on, on my list as well I know Aircraft E references Football Manager in his question but I actually think Football Manager in itself is a brilliant way to get a good understanding of tactics and formations and also things like training loads sometimes it, it's so realistic that it can be slightly, it can be impenetrable for some people. But if you're wanting to educate yourself, I can't really think of many better ways because there is that that interactive element and it, and it is a game, so it's it's quite fun. And then I would also mention because Joe is too mentioned, it's too modest, sorry to do so. I'd mention backheeled if you want stuff on American soccer. I read something the other day. Um, Joe, correct me if I, I've got this wrong, but the each tactical the, the tactical approach of each MLS manager in a hundred yeah. words, and I found that. Um, very informative because there's a lot of there's a lot of teams as I've mentioned previously in MLS and so I don't know the tactical approach of every team and I I found that very informative so there's always good stuff on backheel that's become one of my go-tos for uh, American soccer thank you Graham yeah that's that's great that's super encouraging for, yeah, cosine on the back yield. I, I love it. Joe, your U.S. women's stuff has been excellent, too, from the tactical side of things. So well done there, my friend. Uh, Graham, for you, a question. I, I, I had this. I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, for people, I'm just really showing my cards as being a dum-dum. Uh, for people who have tried football manager and find it almost Dude, as too. impenetrable <laughs> as inverting the pyramid, what would be your advice for maybe how to get into football manager in a way that isn't immediately overwhelming? Uh, get to the first game of the season okay. <laughs> where you have some sort of outcome on what you're doing because the first few, the first couple of months where you're trying to do training loads in pre-season and trying to make signings and so on, it can be very difficult. And also avoid all MLS teams because the trade rules and everything in MLS is just an absolute nightmare. But I do think there is, this isn't the way I normally go, but I believe the football manager that you can get for iPad or for your phone is slightly more simplistic. I know a lot of friends who play that one. It's not the desktop game, which is the one I play. So if, if you find the desktop game slightly overwhelming, then maybe the, the mobile game is, is, the, is the one for you. And I would suggest you, you can still learn a lot from that game as well. I think the first time I played, uh, there, like I got a notification of like, this is a, like an up-and-coming player who has leadership potential and you should foster that. And so I messaged him and I had different options and one of them was like, say he'll be a good future coach. And I sent him that, and he responded, uh, thanks, but I plan to be a manager. Uh, I don't appreciate your talking down to me. And, like, demanded a transfer. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm sorry. I made the computer mad. So, okay. So just stick with it to the one game and then see what happens. Got it. Yes. There All right, cool. Go. Cool, cool, cool. Thank you for that. All right, and thank you, Aircraft E. Aircraft Engineer, perhaps? Well, uh, maybe we'll never find out, but get in touch. Uh, thank you for that question. One here from Steve Hidalgo. Why do Mexican clubs have so many sponsors on their kits? Are there any other leagues who handle sponsors similarly? Yes, I think there are, but I'll uh, I'll start off, Graham. Um, I found an infographic from the 2017-18 season of Liga Mekis, uh, where I think there was three teams, there was Pachuca and Cholos were two of them, where they had 19 listed sponsors. <laughs> 19. Uh, <laughs> and Cholos, one of them was the Hong Kong Gentlemen's Club, which, if you Google it, is a venue to procure adult services in Tijuana. Wonderful stuff. No rules, apparently, Graham. Sure. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. The simplest answer to this is that Liga Mekis doesn't restrict the number of sponsors on shirts like most other leagues do. So in the Premier League, for example, clubs are allowed to have 
a sponsor on the chest. Um, they, they, they're allowed to have a sponsor on the sleeve, and that's quite a recent one. Until a few seasons ago, they weren't even allowed that. I believe it's the same in, in MLS. Then you go to leagues in uh, so Scotland, close, close to, to my heart, Scottish Premiership. They also allow sponsorship sponsors on the, on the back of the shirt and on the, on the shorts as well. And I think it's the same in Ligue 1 as well in France. But then you also have the, the Norwegian League to tackle the, the, the second part of the question of, are there any other leagues that are similar to Liga MX with the number of sponsors? The Norwegian League is just as, as liberal as Liga MX when it comes to shirt sponsorship. And, and you can tell that there are no restrictions in, in Norway because when their teams play in European competition, they can't wear all their usual sponsors because UEFA is similar to the Premier League in terms of the number of sponsors they allow. In fact, I think UEFA in continental competition, you're only allowed the chess sponsor. I'm not even sure you're allowed the sleeve sponsor. Yeah. So if you if you look at Rosenborg or Valerenga when they play in European competition, they, they only have the single sponsor, but then when they play domestically, they've got all the sponsorship. They have two sponsorships. I was looking at a Rosenberg shirt. They had a chess sponsor, a sleeve sponsor, a sponsor below the neckline, which is a really strange place to have a sponsor. One in each shoulder, two on the back, one on one on the shorts, and they had the Coca-Cola logo spread over the, the two legs of the shorts, which is very peculiar. Um, and looking at Norwegian and Liga Meki shirts, I'm not sure I'm a fan. It kind of detracts from the design. There's a novelty element. See, when I see some sponsors and they're, they're done in a different way, maybe I'm interested that way, but it certainly detracts from the, the design of the shirt, in my opinion. It kind of reminds me of Ricky Bobby selling his windshield yeah. to Fig Newtons. <laughs> it's dangerous and inconvenient, but I do like Fig Newtons. Um, that, that reminds <laughs> me, Greg, I, I, I worked for an unnamed website back in the day, and the, uh, the sort of editor of the website said, why don't we just have like slash advertising, just a page where we just put all the adverts so we don't have to have anything on anything else. And everyone was like, who's going to go to that page? Why would they do that? So it's uh, very interesting. But you, you write to bring up the UEFA rules as well, because as far as I could tell as well, you're only allowed the one sponsor on the front and non-commercial um, sponsor of sorts on the back. So um, like a, a, a team nickname or something and no sleeve sponsors yeah. as well. Uh, so most European teams' domestic kits do have to change for UEFA for competition. And uh, I think Liga is one where you can have a couple of extra ones on the front. I think I saw a Nice, a nice kit where they've got a couple of extra sponsors on the top and they compared it to a Nice shirt on the site that I was looking at where it just had the main sponsor. So, yeah. Um, Joe, anything more to add on this one? Not Really? Sponsors lead to money? Liga Mekis teams like money like every other team hmm. does? I mean, the the one thing I, w- I would say is I, I kept thinking about our Soccer 101 episode that we did on, it was on jersey sponsorship, was it not? I mean, we, we talked about this fairly recently, and basically this is the, the trend that we're seeing in soccer right now. We're not there yet. We're not to Liga Mekis levels all across the world, but sleeve sponsors are becoming more of a thing. You see sponsors on the back that you didn't used to have. You see sponsors at all, which weren't really a thing decades and decades and decades ago. I think as time goes on, teams are con- going to continue to find more creative ways to, to get a little bit of extra income out of both their jerseys and other aspects of the club. And, and Liga Mekis is maybe just a little bit ahead of the trend and maybe just visually a little less uh, refined and aesthetic in how they've gone about doing that. The, this, this is a genuine question. I'm interested in if anyone has an insight on this, but is there any reason why... When you look at European soccer teams, there tends to be a lot more sponsors than if you go to MLS or certainly if you go to American sports where I'm thinking of basketball, where I know they've just brought in sponsors for the shirts there, but they're, they're tiny little logos up in, up in the, the top corner, corner of the shirt. And when you contrast that with how American sports are in every other aspect where you've got, you know, replays being sponsored and, and that is that they go further in that respect than you do in Europe. Is there a reason why that hasn't extended to the shirts as much? Because that is surprising to me as a European. I don't have a I don't have a definitive answer, but my guess would be the single entity structure that there's less of a need to have like massive amounts of money rolling in if you're going to end up maybe having a revenue sharing agreement with the other owners or you're going to have a salary cap anyway. I think there's probably like basically too much individuality there, whereas the league wants to be able to conduct like sponsorships across the board. Uh, So, I mean, what we may end up getting, Graham, is the NFL selling 
every single NFL team has the exact same sponsor. Maybe they'll end up opening up to like more regional things, and I think that would be really cool. I kind of like when Liga Mekis has that. Like Joe initially leading us off with with his uh, his pie company, his local yeah. pie company. That feels like what it's kind of meant to be. Is if you're not a huge club, you have more regional sponsors, and you have a bunch of those regional sponsors, then you can have some money. If you maybe aren't Manchester United, who can afford to uh, get all the money from Chevy or something like that? Um, yeah. But it does seem like a wasted opportunity to have a lot of money come in and then be able to pay players more or uh, build up more infrastructure accordingly. So I think it'll pro- it's probably something that will happen, but my guess is that it will be league-mandated vo- more so than the individual uh, owners or franchises. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's totally yeah. possible. The other thing with the NFL in particular is they just make so much money from so also many that. other things, <laughs> including commercial breaks, right? That's one thing that yeah. they have that soccer doesn't really have. They just haven't really needed... To tap into that revenue stream. That's not to say that they won't, Taylor. I think, you know, looking ahead, almost why wouldn't you? It seems like the NFL knows how to get yeah. money. They're not blind to this whole trend. So I think it could happen, but it just hasn't happened yet, partially as well, because it's just not a part or hasn't been a part of American sports culture. Yeah. When I think of NFL owners, I don't think of them going, ah, that's enough money. Yeah. We don't need to do that. <laughs> so maybe shirt suits, sponsors man. are coming. I think of ill-fitting suits when I think of NFL owners. Indeed. Just, and cigars. Let's just leave that money on the table and stick without ill-fitting suits for now. I think is what we'll need. I do think, I, I do think it's soccer though. Like Graham, to, to your question, I think like with the NBA, I think it's looking at global soccer and being like, wait, you all make how much money? And it's just for putting a like, yeah, we'll do that. Like I, I think, I think Joe's right that it's like American sports kind of do what American sports do. And I think increasingly there's looking abroad and realizing there are other things to be learned and other ways to operate. So, uh, yeah, I think it's probably not long before we have sponsors everywhere. Ricky Bobby style. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you very much, Steve, for that question. We'll be back right after this break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our listener questions. David Beffert has been in touch, who asks, what's your view of Leeds United's transfer window? They've quickly become a team for USMNT fans to watch with Adams, Aronson and Marsh there. But I can't help but wonder if they've had a net positive transfer window and whether this incipient Team American narrative might not be great if they do poorly next season. Good use of incipient, some good words in the questions today. Excellent. Thank you, David. Um, Taylor... I didn't have any cause to think that Leeds had a bad window up until I saw this question. We know Calvin Phillips has gone to Manchester City, of course, but with Aronson coming in, with Tyler Adams coming in, they've got a couple mm-hmm. of other players um, coming in across the team as well. Uh, is there any cause for alarm, positive or negative here? I mean, I think anytime you're talking about a team that just narrowly avoided relegation and still has a, an unproven manager, at least in that particular league, uh, and lost t- two key performers, yeah, I think there's probably reason for concern, but I don't think their transfer strategy makes that any worse. Uh, to David's question, they literally uh, have a net positive uh, transfer window right now because selling Rafinha and selling Calvin Phillips, they've made $117.42 million. Uh, they've signed six players for $116.2 million. So they've got $1 million left over right now. We'll see what they do with it. Uh, I don't know if that's Gam or Tam. I'm not sure that's how it works. <laughs> uh, but the players they have brought in, I think, will make them better. And I think they fit with the identity of Jesse Marsh. And I think with they will fit with the identity of Leeds as well. That's kind of been established under uh, Bielsa and now with Marsh. So I think Brendan Aronson is going to be maybe a little bit rough to start, and there's going to be a pretty steep learning curve in terms of the speed of the game, but I think he will rise to the occasion. I think he's a really strong performer. I think Tyler Adams the same. From what I've read of Luis uh, Sinistera, uh, the left winger from Feyenoord that they bought, he's their second most expensive acquisition uh, this offseason. Feels like he will be able to come in and have that impact and be a very 
pacey and clever and tricky winger. So that feels like an out and out Rafinha replacement. And to me, that's what I want to see a team that I care about do is basically have plans in place like we talked about with Ajax earlier in the week to be able to sort of sell on players, buy players that can replace them, and then eventually you sell those players on as well. And everybody that leads assigned is 25 years uh, of age or under, and they're all players that I think fit areas of need. So if I were a Leeds fan, I would be pretty optimistic. And I would also remind everybody from the USM&T perspective that it's Marsh comes in and then Adams comes in. But Brendan Aronson, lest we forget, was very much on the radar before Jesse Marsh took over. So even there, I think it's probably going to end up getting, if they don't have a strong start, it's going to be lumped in as Jesse Marsh brought in these two Americans and now they're not playing well. And I guess that is technically the case, but it's also not. So that's one little wrinkle I would add to that. But overall, I think Leeds are doing pretty well in the window. I think Tyler Adams was also on their, their radar bef- even before yeah. Jesse Marsh. I'm sure I read that that speculation. So you could argue that both players, it's a very easy narrative, as you say, Taylor, to say these are Marsh signings. And of course, technically yeah, they I, are. I like how much but, logic we're trying to put into this when we know for a fact that just people on Twitter spewing this stuff don't have, nah. don't care to think that way. I'll put nah. it that way. Nah. I don't know what <laughs> you you're, t- right. you're, you're talking about, right. Joe. You're both right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do believe Adams and Aronson are, are good fit for Leeds. And, and, and the context with Leeds is that Bielsa and Marsh, there is a lot of overlap in, in terms of what they look for off the ball, but they want their teams to play in a different way in the attack. So Bielsa was all about possession and getting the likes of Banford and Harrison and Rafinha into the box as often as he could. And he used the, the wing backs as a supply line. Whereas Marsh, on the other hand, he favours a bit more of a, a direct attacking style through the, the central space, spaces. It's a much more narrow approach. And uh, when I was doing a bit of uh, research and analysis of how Leeds played towards the end of last season, they very much like to overload in the central spaces and, and that's going to affect the success or failure, I guess, of the players that they sign. And it's probably good news for Adams and Aronson, who obviously play through the middle. And it says something that Marsh has pushed for these signings because he clearly feels, feels that there can be a change of approach and a, cha- a change of tact in the in the central areas. And I think if you look at the, the players that they have signed looking beyond the... The, the two Americans that they've signed, I think you can see that Leeds are trying to mould their team yeah. to the image of Marsh, which I, I think is a good thing when you have that that alignment between the coach and the transfer strategy. So Marsh is going to want a lot of the width from his fullbacks. So they have signed Rasmus Christensen, which I believe, who I believe is a big upgrade on Luke Ayling at right back. They got him from from Salzburg. You mentioned uh, Sinistera there, Taylor. He's a Rafinha replacement, but he takes fewer touches of ball and, and, and is a bit more in, direct and in theory should also fit Marsh's approach. So when you look at this, the, the players that they're signing, it's very much in line with what Marsh wants. And I still expect, this is where it gets a little bit difficult, I still expect Leeds to be fighting relegation. I, I still think they're going to be down there. But if they avoid relegation, I, I think that's a successful season for them. I think that's where they are at the moment. And I think the players that they've signed will help them do that. Graham, is, is Tyler Adams to Jesse Marsh what Nico Cranchar is to Harry Redknapp? <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. Tyler Adams' career is going to be tethered to Jesse Marsh from this point on, uh, whether it's the US national team or the move, the, the inevitable Jesse Marsh move back to MLS. Hopefully, sometime from now, yes, but maybe Tyler Adams is. Maybe he'll. I saw Wayne Rooney saying he's going to live with some of his players at DC United. Maybe Marsh and Tyler Adams are going to live together in Leeds. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I totally there are so missed many that. red flags. There are so many red flags <laughs> about this. I'm so excited for Wayne Rooney, but yeah. Wow. Wow. Yes. Wow. Um, okay. The the only thing that I'll add to this whole Leeds thing, because I I don't want to dive any deeper into the Wayne Rooney territory <laughs> at the moment, is I think I think setting the Team American narrative aside, which I know is pretty much exactly what this question is about, but we've already covered that. That narrative is going to come up, and it's it's unavoidable. This Leeds team is probably going to lose a lot of games in the Premier League, and it's going to be brought up, and it's it's kind of up to all of us as individuals to decide how much we want to even allow ourselves to think about that because. I do agree with you, Graham. I agree with Taylor. I don't think there's much logic behind it, but that's just how people want to talk about soccer, especially when Americans are involved. I think from a Leeds United perspective, you're pretty happy with this transfer window. Yeah, you lose a couple of key players, and that is a big deal, right? I mean, you have a couple of outgoing guys that are, are were really key contributors last year. Rafinha only scored 11 goals in, in the Premier League last year. I think you're pretty confident as a Leeds United fan that Aronson and, and uh, Sinestera can come in and 
produce something close to that level and, and maybe even a little bit more between the two of them. Uh, Sinistera had really great goal scoring. Well, he had, he had good goal scoring numbers last year in the Eredivisie and in the Europa Conference League. 18 goals and 11 assists in all competitions. And that's not Premier League level, but I would say it's not entirely in a different stratosphere. You feel pretty good about that signing, at least in a very macro sense. Aronson, coming in from Salzburg, was a pretty well-regarded player, even again setting the U.S. men's national team stuff aside. Tyler Adams is a player who looked like he was going to head to a, a top-six Premier League club a year or two ago. Christensen is, is a player, Graham, you said you're high on and another Salzburg guy. And then you have Mark Roca coming in from Bayern Munich, where yeah. he wasn't playing but was pretty highly regarded during his time in La Liga with, I believe, Sociedad. I mean, I mean, uh, maybe, shoot, was it Sociedad or Espanol? I don't know. Espanol. Espanol, there it is. I mean, this is a, a pretty strong group of players on paper, and of course paper doesn't win you soccer games, but I, I feel like Leeds fans should be pretty pleased with, yes, you lose Calvin Phillips, yes, you lose Rafinha, most likely. I don't think that deal is done yet, but still, I like this crop coming, and I think they should too. Excellent stuff, David. Thank you very much for the question. Let's move on to Zach Lippert, who says, What went wrong at Barcelona for Ricky Pouge? I thought he was supposed to be the next big thing before Gavi and Pedri showed up. Graham, we'll come to you as our resident Barcelona expert. Um, What's up with Pouge? 22 years old, central midfielder. I think he did did play a reasonable amount last season, but perhaps hasn't taken the spot that he uh, should have. Hmm. The answer to what went wrong at Barca for Ricky Puj is, is the answer is Ronald Koeman. That's basically what went wrong for, for Ricky Puj. He, he just didn't fancy Puj at all and that stunted his development. And to be fair to Koeman, there were reports about Puj's lack of discipline around the training pitch. Um, even after Koeman left, there was there were stories about him turning up late to training and there was a bizarre tale where he nearly ran someone over on an electric scooter inside the training complex. I'm not entirely sure why Barcelona have electric scooters <laughs> in the training complex, but there you go. And then what happened was you had the likes of Pedri and Gavi and, and Nico Gonzalez come along and Puj has been pushed so far down the pecking order it kind of feels like he's he's missed his opportunity. There was a window in which he could have become a key player for for, for Barcelona. Coleman would argue Puj was a, a poor trainer, a disrupt, disruptive influence, and also that he didn't play well when he did get on the pitch. That's a key part of it as well. I remember Puj coming on for, in the second half of games under Coleman, and you were thinking, right, here we go, he's going to make an impression, and he didn't really. It was fairly anonymous in those games. His body language was poor, which maybe Coleman would point to as a reason why he wasn't starting games, so he didn't take those opportunities. Puj was maybe argue that Coleman played him too high and slightly out of position where I think and a lot of people think he's better in a deeper role where he's able to carry the ball forward and Coleman maybe didn't understand what sort of player he was and it's certainly now the the case that Barcelona just they simply have better options than him now and younger options too that's the thing about Puj he'll be 23 in August so he's not that young anymore anymore it just feels like he needs to play and it doesn't seem like that's going to happen at Barcelona. So if I were him, there's been a lot of talk of loan moves. He doesn't want to go out on loan. He's resisted going out on loan. But at this point, he's so far down the pecking order that I, I can't see a way that he's going to push himself back yeah. up again. Yeah, Graham. And that key distinction, this is almost like a two-part uh, play. It's a two-part performance here. You have the Ronald Koeman part, which you detail very, very well. And then you have the maybe more recent, Koeman's gone, new managers are in, now it's Xavi. And you just have better players ahead of him, players that are like generational talents. And maybe Puj is that. It seems like maybe he's not. But I, I think he's still a very good player. But you just have now in the second act, after the Kuman act, you have Pedri, who is a, a generational talent. He is so good. And if he didn't play 8,000 minutes for Spain and Barcelona, we'd be talking a lot more about him because he keeps getting injured because he played 8,000 minutes for Spain and Barcelona. But you have Pedri, you have Gavi, you have Nico Gonzalez, you have so many talented youngsters in this Barcelona midfield as they push into the attack that at this point, there's not really a spot for Puj. Back in 2018-2019 in and even 2019-2020, Barca had Arthur and Vidal and Rakitic and De Jong Players that all have a, a different profile to Puj, yeah. and that feels like it would have been the perfect time for him to break in. Yes, he would have been young, 18-19 in that stretch, 18-19-20 in that stretch, but he didn't break in, partially because Koeman didn't like him, partially because of the other things that you talked about, Graham. He didn't break in, and so now it's like, okay, he's a little bit more mature, he's involved in the squad, he, he's a little bit of a Barcelona veteran at this point coming up in, and now into the first team. But now he just has other players with a very similar profile who have proven that they can execute at the highest levels in the world. 
it seems like the window was open back in, in 2018 through maybe 2020. That window was closed on him, and maybe he had a part in closing it. And then you look to now, and the window maybe was open again, but Pedri just comes and, and slams the door on him. So yeah. I, I hope we get to see Puj play somewhere. It doesn't feel like that place is going to be Barcelona, at least not getting a lot of minutes at Barcelona. From what I've read, I agree with everything you two have said. From what I've read, and there's a piece, I forgot to save the link to it. I will try to find it and post it in the show notes later on or something. Uh, but it's basically, I think the idea is that maybe the window was too open when he first came through because he comes through as a 20-year-old. 20, 20 basically, there's a ton of injuries, a ton of fatigue due to like the COVID fixture congestion or post-COVID fixture congestion. So he starts getting minutes, and it's a team under Kike Setien that aren't playing the most attractive football. Uh, it's a lot of reliance on Lionel Messi to create, and in comes this 20-year-old who wants the ball and can pop up in little pockets and make things happen and is very good on the ball and has great vision. Uh, and, and I think it becomes he is the next big thing. Uh, but uh, this article then does a great job of kind of pointing out that the major deficiency in his game is that he's not great at reading what everyone else is doing. He's very good at reading what he's doing and then spotting opportunities and spot, spotting like available players. But the positional play side of thing very much a negative in his game, and that is very much what Xavi wants his entire team to do. And so I think he kind of comes through at a time when they need this very skillful improviser who can create, and that's what he is, but it doesn't then allow him to develop those other aspects of his game, such that now, as you all have already mentioned, you've got Pedri, you've got Gavi, you've got Nico Gonzalez. I agree with Joe. I think Pedri is a generational talent, but he's incredibly good at positional play. Gavi, I think, has a superior defensive ability, still very good on the ball. Nico trained as a central pivot under La Masia with the idea of him becoming the Busquets replacement. So I think there's three players right there who are better, if not technically, I think a couple of them are better technically, but they're better in terms of fitting into the system and playing the way Xavi wants. And right now that's not Ricky Puj. So I hope he does get a move to somewhere where they need that creative playmaker and kind of let him do what he wants to do and let him cook, basically. Let's let him cook. Uh, yeah, he's linked with the likes of Porto, with uh, Fiorentina, Lazio, Valencia, a whole bunch of clubs linked with him in the press. But we'll see. Maybe Ricky can't be picky about these kind of things. We shall see. Thank you very much, Zach, for that question. Quick break. We'll come back with a few more questions back shortly. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to listen to questions. Matt Haney has gotten in touch. Hello, Matt. We talk about the USMNT needing to play better competition more regularly, but not as much about the USWNT. Is it a disadvantage for them to play in the CONCACAF W Championship while the UEFA Women's Euros are happening? Does the overall strength of NWSL balance out any difference in international competition? Taylor, a very interesting question. When I first read it, I was wondering, why would it be a disadvantage to be playing competitive soccer at any given moment? But I suppose the question leans on the fact that the USWNT aren't playing higher quality European sides at this specific moment. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the equivalent in some ways to the Gold Cup on the men's side, where, yeah, you can have like very good teams and you can have like newer teams that we don't know about or teams that have been building for a long time, but ultimately you're sort of expecting it to be USA and Mexico in the final, and I think for the W Championship we're expecting it to be and have been expecting it to be the US women and the Canadian women, and that's probably what we're going to get because those are the two dominant teams in the Confederation. So I I, I take Matt's question and kind of agree with it. I I don't know if it's a disadvantage because you can only play in the competitions that you're allowed to play in and it's not like the 
USWNT can sort of jump to Europe and get some like an invite to be there. So they've got to play where they can. And I think that's why they try to make it up with the She Believes and participating in other tournaments that allow them to play, I guess, quote unquote, competitive games against stronger opposition. But that's all you can kind of do at the international level, at least to my mind. With the NWSL, I don't think it does balance out the no. overall strength because, as as we talked about in the Euro previews, I think it's 98% of the players that the Euros play in Europe. Only six play in the uh, NWSL. Uh, there's a good article, I think, for The Athletic uh, that came out today or this week about how it's been really beneficial to African teams, uh, especially Nigeria, I think, was the one that got the headline. Uh, so NWSL has done a really good job of sort of developing players from lots of other places, less so Europe. And so I think Europe itself is is strengthening. There's more money there. There's more money being pumped into those leagues and into those teams. And I think it will continue to improve. I still think it's got a ways to go before the United States is kind of completely overtaken or like falls out of that uh, favorites to win the World Cup in every single conversation sort of spot. But I do think that gap is closing. I know many people would say it's already closed, and I'm not quite there, but I think it's getting narrower pretty quickly. I think I feel more strongly about this, Taylor, than you do, I, both in, in my concern for, well, mm-hmm. not concern, but by my willingness to admit that I think Europe has closed that gap. I think we are right there. If we're not there, we are like a half inch away at this point when you look at the quality that's in Europe right now with some of the top nations there. I think the U.S.'s place in CONCACAF in terms of qualifying for major tournaments is a huge advantage, a huge advantage, uh, because the competition isn't as good. But in terms of raising the level of this team and preparing them for those major tournaments, I think it is absolutely a disadvantage. And that's just the trade-off that the U.S. has to live with. I think the U.S., in order to prepare themselves for those moments, to get them ready for the World Cup, which Vlaco says they're not. Although, to be fair, we're a couple days past that comment where he talked about tomorrow, so maybe yeah. they are ready now. I don't know. But the U.S. needs games against big teams. They, they do. And I don't think the NWSL, the quality of the NWSL, though there is a lot of talent there, solves that issue because you have a bunch of players playing on separate teams, which doesn't really help build you know, every game chemistry for the national team, although the rain and the spirit have 80,000 U.S. women's national team players on them. So there is something there. Other leagues are getting better, though, and I'm not sure that the league component I would factor in as much here. This is, this is what the She Believes Cup, Taylor, you mentioned it, used to be useful for, right? So the She Believes Cup, founded years and years ago now, I think 2015, 2016, and at the beginning you had uh, the U.S., Germany, England, and France every single year, and, and that was great for the U.S. Those teams maybe weren't quite as good at that point in time, but you had pretty much the best teams that the U.S. could play. Now fast forward to this year, and, and who did the U.S. play in She Believes Cup? They played New Zealand, Mm -hmm. they played Iceland, and they played the Czech Republic. Not that those teams can't put together strong performances, but they're not England or France or Germany. And England, in the meantime, put on their own Invitational Cup, I believe in that same February window, called the Arnold Clark Cup for the very first time. Spain, Germany, and Canada met with England in that tournament. That's, That's night and day competition. And during other international windows, you have the She Believes Cup and the Invitational window is basically what that window has become. Europe is busy with World Cup qualifiers and pre-Euro friendlies, and the U.S. is is playing Uzbekistan, right? And I know it won't be like this every calendar year because the the cadence will be different as we're not leading into this this particular summer or next summer. But you kind of end up with this troubling pattern. And I I do have some concerns. I think it is important for U.S. soccer to figure out – I don't have the answer to this, but it's important for them to figure out how do we get good games because we're not – realistically getting a ton of that in our region. Canada, credit to them, is a very strong team. And there are other quality teams in this region. But it, it's just not the same. It doesn't have the same br- uh, breadth or, or depth to it. And I, I think that's a problem for the U.S., to be honest. Maybe it, it wasn't five years ago, but women's soccer has changed. It, it is changing, and it has already changed. And I think the U.S. women's national team needs to figure out a way to keep up with that change. Or they really are going to be knocked pretty firmly off that perch into like a, a, a tier with the rest of the top teams in the world. Joe, I hear you. And I think I would add that I'm hopeful that the new uh, sort of bonus sharing agreement that they've uh, agreed upon, the U.S. men and the U.S. women, allows the U.S. women's national team to play more games not in the United States. Because I think that is part of the problem here. Uh, I, I think I'm correct in saying she believes whether there was either COVID limitations or it was sure. teams didn't want to travel uh, that much before the Euros. I think there was a kind of 
a couple different factors. But as you mentioned, Canada then went and played in that competition. Yeah. I think the U.S. is hesitant to play since they like stopped playing in the Algarve Cup. I can never say that city's name uh, or region's name or whatever it is. Uh, I think they don't really play that many games on the road, to my mind. I think it's a big moneymaker to have the team sort of travel around and play a ton of friendlies and get uh, people in the stands, which gets uh, money in the coffers. But that also doesn't really help because you end up scheduling uh, games against teams that aren't really going to be of that caliber to help you improve. So, Joe, I think one step would be my hope would be that with sort of more money coming in, there's less emphasis on having to play in the United States so often. Because also, like, lest we forget, the U.S. on the women's side is a draw. There are incredibly high profile names that I think... People in other countries would want to see, would yeah. pay money to see, even in a friendly, even in like limited competitions. And so I think that is one way that the United States, like, yeah, t- take the show on the road a little bit like Santos with Pele and just go around and get more of that experience. I think that could probably help things out a little bit, too. It's the Algarve Cup, Tate. I know that because I'm literally in the Algarve right now. And yep. I went past the stadium yesterday, Algarve, um, on, on the drive to where we are staying. And it is a very nice stadium and a very nice region indeed. Um, Graham, anything to add on this one? No, I found that discussion very interesting between Taylor and Joe. Obviously, something maybe I I don't know as as much about, not because I don't care about it or because I I, I don't want to know about it, just because I I don't have the bandwidth. And so when World Cups come around, that's kind of when I I get in sync with what's going on with the US women's national team. So um, I I bow to Taylor and Joe on this one. Very good, as do I. Graham. Let's move on to Douglas Sohalt, who says, how did Wembley Stadium come to be a national stadium where no club team plays? What other nations have this arrangement and what, in your eyes, are the benefits of having a national stadium home to a club or not compared to playing national team games in a variety of stadiums? Now, this is a very interesting one because I learned some things looking into this question, Douglas. Wembley Stadium was essentially built as a flex. Um, It opened in 1923. (laughs) Uh, It hosted the first FA Cup final, or it hosted its first FA Cup final, I should say, in 1923 as well. It was built for the British Empire Exhibition in 1923. It was called the Empire Stadium. Doesn't sound fascist at all. Yeah, that aged really well. Yeah, it was literally, (laughs) Graham, a colonial exhibition. So it was built, Wembley was built on the site of what was called a pleasure garden in the 1890s, which probably isn't as fun as it sounds. But it was built at a time in the early 1920s when the British Empire was collapsing. Britain was pulling out of India uh, sort of five years earlier than that. But it was built as a flex, as a show of power to mainly the US and Japan. And in this um, British Empire exhibition of which um, the Empire Stadium, Wembley Stadium, was the showpiece, There were show displays from the 58 territories over which Britain had domain at the time. Uh, The exhibition had uh, working trains on display from several coach builders. There was a working replica coal mine at this thing as well. Um, But this this thing was built, the stadium was built with a legacy. It had a running track. It wasn't just for soccer. It hosted the 1948 Olympics. Uh, Wembley Arena, as we know it, which is the big arena next door, which actually the swimming pool, it was called the Empire Pool. And uh, fun fact, the Beatles played there four times uh, when it was still called the Empire Pool. Uh, And it also had rugby, stock car racing, greyhounds, horse shows, all kinds of other stuff. Probably monster trucks at some point. Probably, what was it called? Gravedigger probably had its run around Wembley at some point. But I think to get to... Almost certainly. (laughs) Indeed. I would would very much hope so. Um, But to get to Douglas' question about why no club plays there, I think essentially, Graham, I don't know if you found this, but it's... It wasn't built by a club. It was built by the state. And you could say the same thing uh, as a London stadium that West Ham now play, and that was built for a similar arrangement for the Olympics. But um, the difference with Wembley is it never took a permanent tenant like West Ham going to the London stadium. You could say a couple of clubs have played Mm -hmm. there. Arsenal played uh, the European Cup games there, I'm going to say the late 90s, I seem to remember, when they were still at hybrid. And Tottenham, of course, more recently playing uh, games there as well, Graham. Yeah, Wembley Wembley is a, a strange case because it doesn't actually fit into what I would say is the model of why national stadiums exist. So, sorry to turn this into a Scottish-centric discussion, which I know I have a tendency yeah, to do, but I think a better answer to this question is if, is if I focus on Scotland and Hampden Park, which is obviously our national stadium, just as Wembley is England. So, if you if you go back to the formative years of association football, which is towards the end of the 19th century, and the main drivers of the sport at that time were the national teams of, of the home nations. 
And these national teams um, predated pretty much all the clubs. So they needed somewhere to play. Scotland couldn't play at Ibrox or Celtic Park because they didn't exist. Celtic as a club didn't exist. Rangers were only six years old and, and they didn't have a stadium at that time. So they had to create somewhere to play. And thus you have national stadiums which predate the club team. So the first match at Hampden Park was in 1878, a full 10 years, as I say, before Celtic were created. Rangers were only six years old, didn't have a stadium. So the the, the reason there's a national t- stadium in Scotland, and I believe in Northern Ireland as well, is because the national team predates the club teams. It wasn't like they could just go and use one of the club stadiums at, um, at that time. And I do think there is a benefit to having, to address the second part of the question, I do think there is a benefit, a clear benefit to having a national stadium. So in Scotland, our game is obviously split in two, right down the middle between Celtic and Rangers. So having a buffer between those two where you can play cup finals and you can play national games without any hint of favouritism or anything like that, I think is, is a good thing. I think those principles also apply to English football, okay, maybe you don't have that that split, that direct split between two club teams, but there's still allegiances in English football, and so having Wembley there as a as a as a cup final stadium just means that there's a level playing field for the two teams involved. No one's playing at their home stadium. It's obviously now they play the semi-finals there as well for the FA Cup, and I believe the League Cup as well. Semi-finals get played there as well. Um, so it's it just allows a level playing field in those competitions. And it's just a shame that in in Scottish terms that Hamden is a shell of a stadium these days because I really like the concept of having a national stadium. And um, I've been to Wembley a couple of times and it's a very nice stadium. It's very different to Hamden. Yeah, it's not got the same vibe it used to, Graham. Pre-New Wembley, it felt more special, I'd say. I'm lucky enough to have been to both. But... um... It's a bit. The new Wembley is a bit too comfortable, in my view. It's a bit like going to the cinema. Okay. You want you need to be closer in and be more uncomfortable. And basically, you need to be having a bad time t- for a stadium to be good. As my so motto. That's why they're keeping the camp new, like it is. I got it. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, Wem- Wembley is an interesting case in terms of being, you know, a national team stadium. It doesn't have a club in it. And I was trying to think of a few others. You mentioned Hamden there, but Stade de France, I suppose, is one. And the, the Aviva Stadium in Dublin, I think, is. Well, it's used for rugby, I think, predominantly, but the national team play there, right, Graham? Um, I, I was struggling to yeah. think of others, where specifically where there's no domestic team playing in it. Did you have any others? No, not not really. The ones you mentioned, obviously, uh, Northern Ireland. I have forgotten the name of the the stadium in uh, Belfast, which I believe Windsor Park. That's I've actually been to Windsor Park. I should really remember that. It's been recently redeveloped as well, so it's it's quite a tidy little stadium. So the home nations, as I say, it's very much something associated I think it's associated with the home nations and the reason for that is what I just explained a lot of these national teams predate the the club team so it made sense for them to have a national stadium and Taylor I've got I think sorry the, go ahead Taylor oh I, was say, I think the two things I saw um I, I like that I think a lot of teams or national teams that do have that one national stadium it tends to be when you look up the history because they hosted some major event, be it a World Cup, be it the Olympics or something like the Pan American Games or whatever. And I like that it's kind of repurposing that stadium that was built for a purpose, usually in the 30s or the 40s or the 50s. And they've kind of continued to have it evolve. And now it's the home of that national team and national events. Um, I would also say Austria, for example, is a good example of one that I thought was interesting, the Ernst Hoppel Stadium, uh, that as far as I know, is only used for national team games except in European competitions. And this is where I can see the sort of usefulness of having a national stadium is that when you have seating requirements for UEFA competitions, specifically the Champions League, you can then use that national stadium, which meets that requirement to host those special games. But it's not necessarily like one club team's home ground. That's also the national stadium. I agree with Graham that you kind of want that neutral venue for neutral games. And uh, so I think that's where it can also be really effective. To flip to the other side of the coin there, though, Taylor, there was a period when Wembley was being rebuilt in the early 2000s, where the England team obviously didn't play at Wembley. They, they went on tour instead. They were playing all around the country. They played at Leeds. They played at St. James's Park. And I really liked that, not least because the fans in the north of England actually got the chance to see the England team on their doorstep. But it felt a bit more special than being always at Wembley. I don't know whether that's a unique opinion of mine. But, I mean, what do you think, Taylor, about having, say, the US team tour around the country? It's, it's beneficial, certainly for the fans, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and, and sorry, just to cut in, the U.S. already does that. The, the state of Ohio is relatively yeah. similar in size to the UK, the U.K., and the U.S. just goes back and forth between Cincy and Columbus. So we're on the, we're on the same page. Where is there a blizzard? We want to play there. That's the national stadium this time. Um, I think 
First, I would say I think we're talking about it from the kind of fan supporter perspective, whereas I think for players, having a national stadium and a national training facility is probably very nice that you just know where you're going. It's not, oh, I've got to like get a flight scheduled to this city, and then we're going to fly to here, and then I'm going to be flying back. Not that they're the ones making these arrangements. They're not going on Expedia or Fair Compare or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> but I, I think... Having that level of consistency probably makes it less jarring to jump from a club team to your national team and then back to the club team. Uh, on the U.S. side, I think it's just geography is always going to be a part. And you can't put the, the national stadium in the heart of the country. You can't put it on one coast or the other. And so I think it makes sense when you have a country the size of the United States to have it moving around and to, and to yeah, allow, I think, for more people to be able to see that national team. I'm sure the players would prefer probably something closer to the East Coast uh, and one kind of centralized location. I guess that's not really centralized, but one closer to reach place that they always can kind of land is the home base, is where the training will be, and then maybe they fly to games after that. That seems to usually be Florida or California as the two kind of main meeting hubs to start off camps. But I wonder if, yeah, having just that one main facility on one of the coasts would make it a little bit easier. Maybe so. Taylor, as, as an aside, have you ever uh, experienced a pleasure garden? Uh, I think I went to a place in Vegas called that. It was very expensive. <laughs> uh, I've been to a hanging garden. I don't know if I've ever been to a, a working pleasure garden. I feel like if you go to some like Roman relics, you can probably find a place that was that. And it already, and it even still feels kind of creepy, like 2,000 years later. Huh, Roman relics, who knows where to find them? I certainly don't. Joe, anything else to uh, add to this one? I am afraid of the waters that we are entering in, so we can we can keep going. Excellent stuff. I think that pretty much brings us to the end of the episode. No, it doesn't. Bonus Tater content, everybody. Sound the alarm. Ooh. We've got one more question. It's aimed at our leader, Captain Legend Taylor Rockwell. Shreyas Romani. Hello, Shreyas has got in touch and says, For Taylor, there aren't enough Taylor-targeted questions on the podcast. Aw. So I have one, says Shreyas. Why do people make fun of RFK Stadium and FedEx Field so darn much? Taylor, the floor is yours. Uh, yeah, I, I, first off, I would not put those two uh, places in the same sort of level. Uh, I think people mock FedEx Field, whereas people kind of lovingly poke fun at RFK. And I will explain that difference starting with RFK, which for me is it's beloved and it and it has so much character still, but had so much character when DC was playing there and other uh, sports teams before them. It's like the... The first car you get that's sort of like a hand-me-down, hand-me-down, hand-me-down that has like way too many miles and is kind of falling apart, but it's lived in and you love it. Uh, I love many aspects of RFK. I love the name of the stadium itself. I like Robert F. Kennedy quite a bit, a man who I'm convinced would have been elected president and changed U.S. history for the better until he was assassinated. Um, I'm going off on a rant, and you're going to have to deal with it, listeners, because Shreyas asked. Um, if you go listen to his speech when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, RFK's impromptu speech, he kind of gave it off the cuff, is maybe one of the best speeches I've ever heard in my life. And I think he definitely would have been a difference maker. So I love that the stadium uh, bears his name. But I also... I'm looking forward to you, to hearing how you love FedEx so much now. Oh, oh, so much. <laughs> so many positive thoughts. I, I can't even joke about it because I dislike that place so much. Uh, I also grew up being a Washington football team uh, fan. They played their games at RFK until December of 1996. And I remember that final game. They blew out the Cowboys and the seats were being removed. Fans were taking the seats home. Fans were taking the grass home. And every single part of it was kind of being stripped because this is the last game that will ever be played at RFK and then DC played there for another 21 years or so um, so that shows you maybe where that character comes from but then those early DC United games where they had the kind of stands that would stretch out or extend for soccer games they did not extend for football games but they would bounce really easily so you'd have Barra Brava going nuts and you had this great supporter culture it hearkened to like the DC punk and hardcore days, and it felt very much like just kind of like punk rock soccer RFK did. Audi Field sort of still has that vibe a little bit. I was talking with a buddy of mine about this just because there was such a struggle to get the land for Audi Field and to build that stadium. I kind of forget how long that saga was, but RFK just has 
so much history and so much character to it, including the raccoons that live in it and flooded <laughs> hallways and concrete that would fall on you while you're in the press box. And no air conditioning air conditioning in the press box because it wasn't really a thing when the stadium was built so i think they get away with that one then the team uh the washington football team moves to then jack kent cook stadium because that was the family that owned them they then sold to dan snyder it becomes fedex field and that stadium is basically just like uh entwined forever with Daniel Snyder uh, and whereas RFK is unsullied by the Snyderverse. FedEx Field, I have a buddy who refers to like those overstuffed couches and chairs that people had in like the early 2000s, like the stuff that Tony Soprano sits in in his house. That's FedEx Field. It's just big. It's stretched out. You're far away from the field. It's open. It's concrete everywhere. It's like 30 miles outside of D.C. It's in Landover, Maryland. So I guess they were they're the Landover commanders for now. Uh, until they become the Loudon Commanders, uh, and it's just it's just sort of there's no culture, there's no history. It's not even connected to the city. It's one sort of millionaire billionaire's plaything that he then does nefarious things with. And so FedEx Field is just this sanitized, gross thing. Whereas RFK, people kind of I think lovingly tease it because it has a family of raccoons living in it. That is my lengthy explanation for why RFK rules and FedEx Field can, as the I- English would say, do one. Huh. I saw that. I saw it. RFK was literally on fire last week. Yeah, no. That family of raccoons that, that live there—they must have burned their toast or something. It was. I just enjoyed all the jokes about like, like, because you could see there was video of uh, firefighters breaking like glass doors to get in, and and I just really was wondering like how many times they had to break those versus how many they were conveniently already smashed because RFK. Bless. All right. Thank you, Shrest, yeah. for that question. And thank you very much, listener, for sticking with us. Once again, totalsoccer.com slash questions if you want to send us one. But for now, Taylor Rockwell, thank you very much and for expertly handling that DC-related question at the end there. Black flag rules. You're welcome, my friend. They sure do. Bit of Henry Rollins any day of the week, Tay-Tay. There you go. Uh, Graham Ruthen, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Joe Lowry, pleasure as always. Bring the raccoons back. Aww. Thanks, Ryan. Yes. Cute little burglars, aren't they? Listener, thank you very much. We'll be back on the feed shortly. But for now, bye. Bye.